Today on Blue 58, if you don't set expectations for your team, how do you know if they're doing a good job or not? Answering that question is going to be our goal for the next few episodes. And today we're starting with the front office and the head coach. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. We're starting our season preview for 2021. Usually, typically, we go position by position, just talking about what's going on at each position group. And I wanted to do that a little bit differently this year while combining it with something we used to do as a, a big feature at thepowersweep.com. I want to set expectations for everybody. And I think this is important for a few reasons. First, you can't evaluate somebody if you don't know what you wanted from them in the first place. You ever worked a job like that? You ever have a boss like that who wasn't clear about their expectations? I have. I had a job once where I literally could not get my boss to tell me what he wanted me to do. He would just say things like, keep doing your best, you know, just uh, keep, you know, doing, doing your job, you know, do, you know, just keep, keep, you know, keep grinding away. Just sort of vague things like that. And boy, did that make for an interesting conversation when performance reviews came around. Why didn't you do X, Y, or Z? Well... You said keep doing my best. You didn't really lay out exactly what you wanted me to do. I don't know how I can not have not met these expectations, even though you didn't really tell me what you wanted. I ended up quitting that job the next day for completely unrelated reasons. Seriously, completely unrelated. But uh, that did make it a lot easier. Uh, secondly, I think it helps us clarify the results for the whole team. If you set expectations you can know whether your team over or under achieved. And it might change how you feel about your team's performance in a given year. Look at the past three years of Packers football, 2018, 2019, and 2020. 2018 was more or less an unmitigated disaster. There was some talent on that team. They should have been better than they were, but they definitely underachieved. Relative to the expectations, they should not have been a 6-9-1 team or whatever it was. In 2019, new coach, some new free agent signings, nobody's really sure what to expect. And I think 13-3, and a trip to the NFC Championship game, as disappointing as the ending was there, that was an overachieving season. In 2020, maybe they just hit it right on the head. Maybe they achieved what they were supposed to and then just came up a little bit short on the end. If you want to say they underachieved because they came up short in the NFC Championship game, I think you could say that. But I think that shows that you had a level of expectation for that team. Make sense? Good. This is a little bit easier for players than for personnel people or coaches, but I think it's important to do it for coaches and the front office as well. So let's start with the front office. Only really two guys that we can talk about with any level of certainty in the front office. That is Mark Murphy and Brian Gutekunst. Murphy, what do we expect from him? This is kind of a zero-sum sort of thing as the president of the Packers. Either things run smoothly for your organization, or they don't. Results, results, results. It doesn't matter what you do, what you say. What matters is the final product. And in the offseason, all you can really judge on is how things are looking from the outside. And right now, from the outside, it doesn't look like things are running all that smoothly in Green Bay. 
I don't think you even have to go as far as saying Mark Murphy is the cause of this discord in Green Bay, though you may have evidence for that if you read between the lines a little bit, maybe not so much between the lines uh, from some people's statements, okay, Aaron Rodgers' statements or maybe James Jones' statements about Aaron Rodgers. But I think it is not at all unfair to say that Mark Murphy is a part of why things are the way that they are right now. Dating back to the end of the 2018 season, Mike McCarthy's gone, Ted Thompson steps down. Well, I guess that was end of 2017 season that Thompson stepped down. But you see what I mean. Um, He has set himself up as the power broker in Green Bay, taking an active role in the shape of the front office and things like that. And now there are some issues there, apparently. So the expectations for Mark Murphy are pretty simple. Figure out how to smooth this out and get it done. And most importantly, make the right call. This is where it gets a little bit tricky, maybe a little bit unfair sounding, but that's what the job is. Make the right call. Who knows what the the right call is, though? Do you trade Aaron Rodgers? Do you give him whatever he wants to keep him around? You won't know until a year or two from now. But it's Murphy's job to make the call that works. And we're not going to know if he made the right call until we see if it works or not. And then we judge him on whether or not that was the right call. Again, is that fair? Not really, but that's how it goes. This is a result-oriented business, so get some results. That's the expectation here for Mark Murphy, and uh, we can give him a thumbs up or thumbs down, I guess, at the end of the season. Brian Gutekunst, then. What are our expectations for him? I don't really know. I don't really know how you set expectations for the general manager going into the season, but I have a couple thoughts here. First, his work is largely done. We are in the final brushstrokes phase of the offseason. Sure, he's got to make the 53-man roster, but as we've laid out the last couple of off-seasons, that's largely decided already. We shouldn't kid ourselves. The Packers have a pretty good idea who's going to be on the 53 already. But to that end, the expectations for this roster, the roster that Brian Gutekunst put together, should be high, like Super Bowl or bust type high. We even said earlier this year, 2021 is Super Bowl or bust for the Packers, And with Aaron Rodgers not on the roster, if that's how things end up going, they're going to be a lot closer to bust than Super Bowl. But nonetheless, his job is going to be to maintain the Packers' high level of talent and fill in gaps as they arise. And if it is ultimately decided that parting ways with Aaron Rodgers is the way to go here, he's got to get a war chest for Rodgers in return. There is nothing glaring on the Packers right now that Gutekunst needs to really address, Sure, there are some weak spots, but everybody's got weak spots. But weaker spots are going to develop, as they always do over the course of the season. And, of course, Brian Gutekunst is going to have to address them. So the expectations here are pretty high for Gutekunst. He's got to keep the Packers contending at a Super Bowl level, regardless of what his quarterback situation is like or whatever else develops over the course of the season. What about Matt LaFleur? He is facing the same kind of expectations, Super Bowl or bust type stuff, but he has two really clear paths forward here that will affect or maybe curve his grade a little bit. First, there's a situation where Aaron Rodgers returns to the Packers, resumes his position as the Packers starting quarterback, and everything is hunky-dory 
for 2021 at least. If that is the case, I think it's completely fair to expect that the Packers offense be as good or better than last year. And the Packers should be one of the favorites to win the Super Bowl this year. That is the message they've been sending with all of their offseason moves, shoring up their roster, bringing everybody back, filling one of their major holes by taking a defensive back in the first round this year. This is a Super Bowl contending roster. And if Aaron Rodgers is back, that should be the goal. That should be the expectation, I should say. But there's another path possible here that Aaron Rodgers does not return. He is not a member of the Packers here. The expectations, I think, change for Matt LaFleur a little, but not entirely. The Packers still went all-in in whatever version of all-in is is there for the Packers this, this offseason, bringing back guys, restructuring contracts, kick, kicking a whole bunch of money into 2022. But if Aaron Rodgers isn't there... Matt LaFleur has still got to figure out what to do with a green quarterback. Part of the reason that his predecessor found his way out of Green Bay is that he could not handle things very well when Aaron Rodgers went down, first in 2013, then in 2017. What would Matt LaFleur do in that situation? Granted, I think he's probably got a better prospect than Mike McCarthy did in 13 or in 17, heck, even in 18, when Aaron Rodgers was hurt. Jordan Love is probably better right now than Brett Hundley or Deshaun Kaiser or any of the guys the Packers trotted out in 2013 ever have any hope of being. But still, McCarthy could not make much out of what was there. He tried to run the exact same offense with Brett Hundley that he did with Aaron Rodgers. And Hundley, who's probably the most athletic quarterback the Packers have ever had, one of, on the short list for sure, just couldn't do it. But he had a bunch of other skills that he could have used that Mike McCarthy just decided, "Mm, no, we're just not going to do that. How would Matt LaFleur handle a comparable situation? However skilled Jordan Love may be, he is not going to be able to run the Aaron Rodgers version of the Packers' offense. Even if he has all the same plays, he's not going to execute it exactly the same way. One of the things we came back to again and again and again last year was just how professorial Aaron Rodgers looked at the line of scrimmage throughout the season. No crowd noise. He strolls up to the line of scrimmage, finds the Mike linebacker, takes a glance at the coverage, lets the play clock run down so he can identify any blitzers who may be coming late, all right, here we go. There's a play fake. We'll set up. We'll just pick our options from there and go. Jordan Love is just not going to be able to do it. He just cannot play quarterback at that level because he just doesn't have the experience to be able to do those sorts of things, nor does he have the Aaron Rodgers brain that makes it possible. How does Matt LaFleur, if it comes to that, handle that kind of situation? What does he do with Jordan Love? I think that's a fascinating question. And if not for the franchise-altering implications, I would be interested in seeing how it plays out just because I'm curious. What does Matt LaFleur do there? How good a coach is he really? With one very large hand tied behind his back, 
If Aaron Rodgers is gone, what does he do? Curious. We'll find out. Or maybe not. Let's hope not. Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, Chapter 4, The Wishbone. What is the story, Wishbone? Overall impressions of this chapter, I love it. Uh, I love this chapter for a few different reasons. First, this is our first real example of second-level innovation in the book so far. Okay, so you date back to the Stone Ages of football. You got your single wing. A little bit further down the line, you got the wing T. Now, what twist do we put on both of those things? What kind of combines those things all together? You got your wishbone. It's something entirely different than what we've seen so far. Secondly, we're building on this principle that was introduced in the last chapter of getting all 11 players involved on the offense. We are not sacrificing the quarterback spot. But we're also not asking the quarterback to block either. What we're going to do is get the defense to block themselves by thinking. Do they go after the fullback or the quarterback on that first read? On that second read, do they go after the quarterback or the pitch man? After it's pitched, how do they catch up to the guy that apparently is almost always running untouched down the field? If you watch any highlights on YouTube of the wishbone, that seems to be what's happening more often than not ultimately ending with just some dude running completely untouched through the secondary, making one guy miss in the secondary, and he's off for a touchdown. Pretty cool offense if he can get it working. Thirdly, this shows how much of the game is political. Again, circling back to early stuff in this very book, people don't stop running things because they stop working. They stop running because of other reasons they go out of fashion. Or... You've got Lou Holtz putting a very, uh, very fine point on it in what I thought was a great example of how college football grew, changed maybe should is what we should say instead of growing. But I'll read it in full. Quote, once alumni started treating recruiting like it was a season in itself, it became very difficult to run the option. All of a sudden, you couldn't get the dominant quarterback because you weren't going to throw the football and get him ready for the NFL. You couldn't get a dominant left tackle because you weren't going to teach him to pass block. You couldn't get the dominant running back because he wasn't going to be featured enough. Now, you can still win with the option, even if you don't get those people, but you're not going to get those top recruits. But if you're not getting those top recruits, the alumni start to think you're losing and you're not exciting enough, end quote. Not exciting enough. That kind of is the rub with a lot of things, both in football and in life. Sometimes people just are afraid of boring. People want to invest in things that make them excited. But that's not always the way to do it. I have used the example, you know, in conversations outside of the football world, um, of the comparisons people try to make, you know, investing, you know, if I could have just invested in eBay, in Amazon, when I knew it was going to be big, if I could have just you know, gotten in on the ground floor. Yeah, a lot of those things are true, but a lot of those companies are successful because they just outlasted people in similar industries or were so fast on innovation that they just happened to invent something that hadn't been invented um, before anybody else did. You can also make a whole lot of money through really boring investment. Like say you just put a bunch of 
money into like UPS. Just to pull an example that I use frequently in these kind of conversations outside of football a lot. They made $85 billion in revenue in 2020. But they are not what would be categorized as a quote-unquote sexy company. They don't have an Elon Musk. They don't have a Jeff Bezos going to space. Bezos, however you say that last name. They're not super exciting, but they make a lot of money. And they perform a service that a lot of people want. Maybe they're the wishbone of investing. Please don't take investing advice from the power sweep. That would be a bad idea. This is just a a hypothetical or an example. But I think you see what I'm saying. People want excitement. And excitement is not always a good thing. Interesting details from this chapter. Schematically, this is interesting kind of in reverse of what we've seen from other chapters so far. We've talked about things that are interesting because they're exotic. We don't see a lot of single wing anymore. Yes, I know it exists at high school levels, college level occasionally, but it's basically a dinosaur. But it was complex and it was cutting edge at the time. And while the wishbone was also cutting edge at the time, it is also incredibly simple. This offense does not have complicated plays. If you go up and go and look up video of old single wing teams, or just for instance, we've talked about uh, Fritz Chrysler's Mad Magicians with the 47 Michigan team. It looks like they're doing a ballet in the backfield. It, it doesn't look like anything that you see in modern football, but it is wildly complicated. The wishbone is not wildly complicated, at least not in the same way. It's complicated in what it asks of the offense, not schematically, but decision-wise, because it's based entirely on reacting to the defense. That's simple, but not easy. It's simple because you can summarize the play very easily. Take the snap, read the defensive tackle, read the end, away you go. That's it. That's all there is in the basic bread-and-butter wishbone play. You either turn left, turn right, and make those two reads, away you go. You can also see why this has less quote-unquote exotic appeal than some of the other stuff we've talked about, I think. It seems like way more of a philosophy than the other ones. you really got to commit. And uh, the story about Texas uh, late in the chapter uh, really kind of illustrates that. They had a extremely talented quarterback at Texas in Bill Bradley, but it just wasn't working with this offense. They needed a guy who could run the offense, not just a great player. Even in modern football, having great players is going to outstrip your scheme more often than not, but not always. And this is one of those examples where you do need specific players to run the scheme. You really do have to commit to it. The story about Bill Bradley, by the way, standing up for the guy that replaced him, James Street, was very, very cool. It's one of the great things there is about sports, those kind of moments, showing that the team is greater than the individual and all those sorts of great things. But I thought I would throw in a little bit of a nugget about Bradley, who kind of gets undersold, even being described as Super Bill in this chapter. He holds or held at the time the Texas and conference record for most interceptions in a game with four. He went on to be a safety and punter and kick returner in the NFL, made the Pro Bowl three times, was twice an All-Pro. He had 24 interceptions from 1971 through 1973, 
was a, a pro bowler each of those years, an all-pro in 71 and 72. He had 11 interceptions in 14 games in 1971. Super build indeed, and also went on to win two Grey Cups as an assistant coach in the CFL. We'll close with one Packers connection in this chapter. I thought it was interesting that Bill Yeoman landed on the veer or triple option after wanting to install a power sweep at Houston. They mentioned that Yeoman played under Red Blake at Army. That should be a name that is of interest to Packers fans because he was Vince Lombardi's boss uh, when he coached at Army as well. Uh, Yeoman missed Lombardi by a year, but evidently got some of Blake's offensive philosophy. He went in a bit of a different direction than Lombardi, but it's interesting that they both landed on a simple sort of bread-and-butter play that demanded a high level of execution from the offense. Football can be very similar in very different ways from situation to situation. So I've got for you in this episode. Appreciate you tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, I wish you would share it with uh, somebody you think would enjoy it as well. That would mean a lot to me, and it's going to help more people find the show. Getting more people into this conversation is going to help everybody and ultimately help all of us me included, become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.